This is Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. And you know what? I'm glad you're with me. Because you know why? I'm going to talk about a monster financial mistake that polls consistently tell us that over half of Canadians, well, it's actually well over half of Canadians are making. Good news is that it's easily rectified. But I can't emphasize enough that you cannot afford to make this mistake. And I'll get to that in just a bit. I also have trend letters Martin Straith, who's been on a hot streak, whether we're talking about stocks or what's going on with the euro or commodities. So the obvious question for me is, what's coming next? He'll tell us. And if you're interested in the cost of housing in Canada, you got to hear Ozzy Jurek. He's going to break down how much government actually adds to the cost. Now, this is despite the constant lament by politicians how concerned they are about affordable housing. Plus, this week's shocking stat marks the 51st anniversary of what may be the most important financial event in the last, well, maybe 100 years. And it dramatically impacts every one of us, every one of us. So you better stay tuned. And don't miss our highly controversial quote of the week. I promise some people won't like it. And I'm going to finish with the goofy. I can't help myself with this one. You know why? Because there's only so much political horse manure that I can swallow. And speaking of horse manure, let me start with a few questions today. Is there something wrong with this picture? BlackRock and Vanguard, in pursuing their ESG ratings, shun the U.S. coal industry yet invest billions in a Chinese company whose name's literally China Coal Energy Company. And they don't say a word about ESG then. But that's not all. As author and entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy says, points out, the BlackRock doesn't stop there. No, they impose ESG mandates on American companies like Exxon or Chevron. They don't say a peep to PetroChina, where BlackRock's one of the largest foreign shareholders. So I'm asking, is there anything wrong with that picture? How about this one? California, like some other jurisdictions, well, Germany comes to mind, eliminates all fossil fuel production and instead imports oil and gas from jurisdictions with lower environmental standards. But still, California claims to have improved their ESG score because their direct emissions declined, but not global emissions. It's the same thing with a major oil and gas company where they can sell maybe some of its assets into other jurisdictions. They say, hey, look, I reduced my carbon footprint. But the oil and gas is still going to get produced by other companies, which in many cases have lower environmental standards. Overall emissions don't change. In fact, the environmental footprint can be worse. But the company can now claim an improved ESG rating. Something wrong with that picture? I can give you one final one, though. It's from the world of investing. How about this? Something wrong here? EcoBusiness reviewed 253 funds that switched to an ESG focus in 2020 and found 87% of them branded by adding the words sustainable, ESG, green, or climate to their names, but none changed their stock or bond holdings at that point. Bloomberg Intelligence says this is a big moneymaker. Forecasts that ESG is going to surpass $40 trillion worth of assets in the next year, along with massive fees, by the way, for tagging funds with these kind of claims. Talk about ESG, or maybe they're environmentally friendly, whatever it is. And that seems to be, by the way, all investors seem to demand just the right words. As Lynn Alden, founder of Lynn Alden Investment Strategies, one of my favorite macro investment analysts, states in quotes, ESG investing in its current form is similar to people who take selfies of themselves in fancy locations to show they were there while barely experiencing it for real. Mostly theater, little substance, end of quote. ESG, environment, social, and governance has proven to be a marketer's dream, though perfectly capturing the essence of virtue signaling. What's inescapable that it's a label slapped on just about anything 
without any agreed definition of what it means or measurement of what it means. I mean, it's incredible. Europe's going to require 50,000 companies to disclose not just their ESG risks they face, but also environmental and social impact they're going to have in their surrounding. McKinsey and Company estimates that more than 90% of S&P companies now publish ESG reports. But what do they mean? But I'll tell you, as a marketing label, it sure works. No specific definition, though. No standard measurement, along with obvious flaws in the current system. I mean, last week I was talking how the European Union's classifying burning wood pellets as carbon neutral and part of ESG. Absurd. But even getting beyond the lack of specific definitions and measures, there's a huge problem suggesting that the environment, social impact, and governance are compatible. I'll give you just an example. Maybe a company can make huge progress in terms of emissions, but reject diversity over merit as a criteria for selecting board members. But Greta Thunberg gave us an example here, give us an idea, when she said, in quotes, the climate crisis, not just about the environment. It's a crisis of human rights, of justice, of political will. Colonial, racist, and patriarchal systems of oppression have created and fueled it, end quote. Well, obviously, that's about a lot more than emissions. Because in the last five to seven years, what's happened, though, is ESGs just become code words for the progressive agenda. It's become a virtue signaler's dream, a great label to affirm their virtue. But you know what? It's a nightmare for those whose concern goes beyond just talk. But you know what? I suspect that group's in the minority. As I said, much more coming your way today. I think, you, I think you're going to love, as I say, our shocking stat, I think is the pivotal date of the last hundred years in your personal finances. I'll explain. Stay with us. Time now for the quote of the week. Barry Weiss is a former New York Times columnist who created really a big media storm because she quit the New York Times about a year and a half, two years ago, claiming its editorial voice had been captured by those people who felt they were alone in understanding, in quotes, the truth, and everybody else should comply with that. She's now moved on to a very popular podcast called Honestly, which I recommend, along with writing on Substack. Recently, she gave a talk to first-year university students at the University of Austin, in which she described the new ideology that's trying to replace what she called the small L liberalism in America. And I think it certainly applies to Canada. In her words, the new ideology replaces persuasion, the purpose of argument, with public shaming. Moral complexity is replaced with moral certainty. Facts are replaced with feelings. The rule of law is replaced with mob rule. Ideas are replaced with identity. Forgiveness is replaced with punishment. Debate is replaced with disinvitation and deplatforming. Diversity is replaced with homogeneity of thought. Inclusion with exclusion. Excellence with equity. In this ideology, disagreement is recast as trauma. So speech is violence. But violence, when it's carried out by the right people in pursuit of a just cause, is not violence at all, but in fact justice. In this ideology, Bullying is wrong, unless you're bullying the right people, in which case it's very, very good. In this ideology, information that does not comport with the narrative is recast as disinformation. Its proponents are called conspiracy theorists. In this ideology, education is not about teaching people how to think. It's about re-educating them and what to think. In this ideology, the need to feel safe trumps the need to speak truthfully. In this ideology, if you do not tweet the right tweet or share the right slogan, 
your whole life can be ruined. In this ideology, intentions don't matter. You are guilty for the sins of your fathers. In this system, we're all placed neatly on the spectrum of privilege and oppressed. Victimhood in this ideology confers morality. This ideology says there is no such thing as neutrality. The dream of Martin Luther King to judge people not based on their color of their skin, but by the content of their character, is itself to be deemed racist. In this ideology, the equality of opportunity is replaced with equality of outcome as a measure of fairness. If everyone doesn't finish the race at the same time, then the course must be flawed and should be dismantled. By the way, I can't even imagine this being published in the New York Times, but it's considerable food for thought. You can, maybe I should say, you must decide if you agree and support the new ideology or traditional small L liberal thought. I always laugh when I think about doing money talks every week because there's so much to talk about. And I know I've been saying that for a while, but because you're seeing things geopolitically, so we got to keep up to date on that. I mean, one of the things that I'm proud of on money talks, we take a global view because hey, what's the first hint that it's global forces infecting our dom- domestic economy, commodity prices? No one thinks that Canada sets the oil price, for example. No. So that's the view you've got to take. You've got to be a broader view. So my gosh, on that basis, Uh, There's just so much to talk about and so much to factor into our investment decisions. And that's something that the people at the trend letter do. They look at the global picture. They look at the currency picture. They look at how it interrelationship with stocks. Uh, We can talk a little bit about precious metals, obviously interest rates. Wow. Martin Straith joins me now from the trend letter. Did I just give you a headache? I gave myself a headache with that introduction. (laughs) It's a lot to, uh, it's a lot to take in, Mike, but uh, good to be here. Let me start with, uh, you know, one of the things that obviously I look at the polls, they say the number one issue for Canadian is cost of living. Number one issue in the States is cost of living. They may say it differently in Europe. They're, they just scream when you say, what's your number one issue? Because they're thinking about natural gas and electricity prices. But it's the same sort of big kind of bowl around the world. You're seeing inflationary pressures, huge inflationary pressures, actually. Absolutely. You know, I think, you know, we're investors. So the the big key for all of us here is like, what's driving the market? Now, clearly, like you say, inflation is a big, big ticket item for everybody. I mean, whether you're an investor or not, uh, nobody's not feeling the pain of higher food prices, higher, you know, housing prices, higher, you know, uh, gas prices, energy, etc. So to us, you know, the main drivers that are that we're really watching here are inflation um, we're looking at GDP growth, which is the, the growth of the economy or lack of growth. We're looking at employment. And then we're also looking at central bank and monetary policies, because these are the things as investors, if we understand all of that, I think that we can position ourselves to be in a good place. Like when we look at inflation, uh, the U.S. was, you know, they were 9.1%. Uh, last month, it went down to 85 But that is still a really high number. Canada, we were 8.1, and it was dropped down to 7.6. But, Mike, I mean, you look at Argentina. Argentina went from 64%, that's right, 64%, to 71% of inflation. Turkey went 78.7, and they are now almost at 80% inflation. So, you know, I, I understand that the, your audience probably doesn't really pay a lot of attention to Argentina and Turkey, but it's really important to understand this is a global issue. 
Inflation is a big thing globally. Now, if we look at GDP, so if we're looking at the economy now, so we have high inflation. Now we look at the economy. Well, the U.S. economy just went from minus 1.6% to minus 0.9%. So it went, it, it didn't decline quite as much, but that's two quarters of negative GDP. Well, that's the def definition of a recession, even though we're not going to hear that. I mean, the U.S. has an election coming up, so you won't hear any official uh, recession talk. In Canada, we went from 1.6% to 0.8%. So we're not negative yet, but we're declining. And you're going to see that all over the world. Everywhere, we're seeing a global slowdown economically. So what we've got, Mike, is we've got high, although lowering inflation. We have declining markets. So basically, we've got stagflation happening. So the next thing we need to look at is employment and then, you know, monetary policy. And that's, to me, um, where you're going to see a, quite a divergence between maybe what we think is going to happen and what the general market thinks. It feels, I know it's a really overused word, but it feels unprecedented. In other words, it is unusual, I should say. But they're raising rates into an economy that's clearly weakening by a zillion measures. You know, the only one that's not, uh, that's important. It's very important to say that, you know, certainly wage growth is still there and employment growth, although that's iffy if you look at certain sectors like retail and you look at uh, tech, for example, the massive layoffs. But it is a tricky situation. But, you know, you've been bullish on the markets. Uh, you're not surprised by the um, sort of <clears throat> rebound we've had from the low. But what do you see for the markets coming forward? Well, a couple of things, and we have, we've been, you know, we've been long the market since 2016, but we've also been using since January, uh, we were expecting trouble starting at the start of the year. So we've been using, you know, insurance plays. We've been hedging some of those, that long position, and we've been in and out of these hedges, which have helped us kind of protect our, our investment. And again, these are not, uh, you know, we're not playing options or anything like that. These are just simply exchange traded funds. So if we look at the market, Mike, um, you know, the recent rally has been fueled by the expectations that inflation has now peaked and the Fed is going to stop raising rates. Even where we see a lot of commentary that they will pivot and start to lower rates to stop a recession. Um, we've also seen, though, a lot of pessimism in the market. So the markets were very over, you know, basically oversold, a lot of short positions. So that to us was contrarian. So we were saying that, you know, a rally was well overdue. And that's what we've had for the last six or eight weeks. So we had a lot of short covering, which were driving the market higher. We had very speculative. Those mini stocks got really hot again. The Reddit crowd, they, you know, they started the short squeeze and uh, really hit on these. You know, great example is Bed Bath & Beyond. You know, it went up. So the Reddit crowd got onto it. It was being shorted. They jumped onto it, went up 420% in three weeks, but last week it sold off. So we're starting to see some things change here. So the short covering has stopped. Uh, we're seeing the S&P 500 right now testing the 200-day moving average, which we had called saying this sh should be pretty strong resistance. But Mike, really interesting, the S&P 500 today is trading at the same level it was in September 21. And back then, you'll remember the Fed was keeping interest rates low, and they were also buying $120 billion worth of bonds and mortgage-backed securities every month. But today, and so what that did is, I mean, those loose policies really juiced the market. So, and so back then, that really helped the market. You know, I'm, I'm looking at a chart right now. Now, obviously, your, your users or listeners can't see it. 
But, and I'll post uh, some charts up on our website, the trendletter.com. Just go to the blog section and I'll show you the, these charts because it's very interesting because back then and, and really for the last couple of years, you know, the Fed juiced the market, the market goes up and then everything's all good. But today the Fed is not raising or not juicing the market. The Fed is raising rates and they're reducing their balance sheet. They're not increasing it. They're reducing it by $95 billion a month. Inflation's still a big deal. I mean, last week we saw a big, a lot of noise. Retail sales were up. Sure, they were up, but it's only because prices are higher. We have high inflation in a slowing economy. We're talking stagflation here. So the only outlier right now is employment. You know, higher unemployment would seal the deal for us. But low unemployment rates are typically a very good indication of an overheated economy. And unemployment rates tend to rise really quick once the recession kicks in. I'm looking at another chart here, Mike. It goes back over 50 years. Every single recession, just before it, we saw extremely low unemployment. And that's, I think, you know, that's going to be something people really need to keep an eye on here. You know, it's funny. The advice uh, that I've been giving people is I, I can't, I'm not going to, you know, have a crystal ball. But what I do know in this environment and the things you've just alluded to tells me that a lot of people who told me sort of May, June, gosh, I wish I'd got some of my stocks out, you know, they were, you know, now have a chance. You've had a recovery. So I say at the very least, you must revisit the risk you're taking within your investments because you've done a great job just describing some of those risks going forward there. Because what I'm hearing from you is you're not going to be surprised if we get a, you know, September hits and we get a September, October, week periods of the year anyways, a correction in that, you know, at that point. Absolutely. I, I just think these things are all building, Mike. I mean, you know, the University of Michigan published a consumer sentiment index. You know, historically, when the consumer confidence and expectations decline below 80 on their index, it signals a recessionary environment is already present. Today's reading is less than 55. So their threshold is 80. We're already less than 55. Um, you know, the market is really hoping that the Fed is going to, you know, kick in and start to, get to ease again. But, you know, the FOMC, the Fed's minutes just came out the, uh, yes, the other day, a couple of days ago. And they said that they're going to continue with restrictive stance. And that means that they plan to continue to raise rates and reduce demand because they want to slow the economy. So they're in a real dicey place here. They, they want to get rid of inflation. But, you know, you go down that too far, you're going to have a recession. So the markets are expecting the Fed to reverse policy. The Fed's saying they're not going to. You know, as we mentioned earlier, our, our investing rate now for the last, you know, six years, we've been long the market using ETFs, et cetera. But in, since January, we've been using insurance plays, those hedge plays. And what we've been doing is dipping in as we hit these peaks and valleys. We go, OK, this market's overbought and which what we think it is right now. And so we put out a new buy stop for our, our subscribers that if it triggers, then they will again have some insurance if we see a, another correction. And Mike, right now we're looking at in September, we're expecting another pullback, probably at least around 8%. You know, again, the potential for a global recession is very strong. So if all your listeners, you know, be careful. And as you said, look, if you've got some nice profits in there, look to lighten up. Well, as I say, we're always about, I'm all about risk management all the time. Martin, I want to just shift gears for a second, ask you about gold. 
Uh, I just, and again, uh, if you don't, if, if the trend letter doesn't really have a position at this point, fine, but just any thoughts on gold at this point? Oh yeah. We, you know, Mike, we cover, uh, you know, we cover bond market, we cover the currencies, we cover equities, we cover commodities, we cover fresh melt, and we cover it every single week. We issue uh, the trend letter every week. It's about 60 pages, but it's all charts with just bullets, highlights of what's going on in that chart. Because to us, if you can see it on a chart with some nice little explanation of what's going on, you don't have to be an expert to understand, hey, that market's going up or down. You know, right now, okay, I'm looking at a gold chart. Um, anybody, a five-year-old could look at that chart and go, hmm, you know, it had a really nice run up until about March of this year, uh, hit 2043. But since then, it is in a downtrend channel. And unfortunately, um, you know, we, we had some really good gold. We bought it quite a while ago, uh, had some nice run up. Unfortunately, we didn't sell it because we think we're going to get into a longer term run. But right now, gold went from March 2043. It dropped about 17 percent July, in July. And now it's rallied in August up to about 1825. But it's been unable to get past 1825. And so we're worried a little bit that we could probably drop back and test that 1700 level again, even drop down to 1675. But just for your listeners to know, Mike, our models are predicting that we're, pro we're at a potential really good spot for gold. We, th we think gold is starting to form a bottom here. And, you know, if we're right, uh, we're expecting to start issuing some buy signals again, probably in the fall sometime. And this could be a multi-year run. Uh, this could be a really good one. So, again, this is kind of contrarian to the whole um, recession and all these other things. But, yeah, our, mark, you know, our models are just seeing that that's a real potential here. And, of course, uh, it's measured in U.S. dollars. So we've had that strength you mentioned in U.S. dollars, which, you know, in other currencies, gold's been in a raging bull market. <laughs> I wonder exactly. what they're thinking about in Argentina right now about gold. You know, they're yelling, exactly. Eureka. Yeah, exactly. let me just, but speaking of currencies, I want to come to that because now this is a, a, a bit of talking my own book. But I know at the trend letter, you guys have been aggressive like I have been in saying the euro sucks. <laughs> you know, that's the technical way of putting it, by the way. You're more eloquent in the trend letter. But but yeah, you guys have been playing the euro down. Euro hasn't disappointed. Victor Adair, uh, you know, Vic has loved the, the short euro trade. Give us an update there, because that, again, is describing money moving around the world. Absolutely. And, and yeah, you know, there's a, there's some real key things. I mean, there's only like four major currencies. You know, there's U.S. dollar, the euro, the yen, you know, British pound, you know, Canadian dollar. We're Canadian, but I mean, the Canadian dollar is a small player here, but it's all affected. It's all connected. That's the thing people need to understand. You know, investors need to understand how currencies affect each other and other markets. So we look at the U.S. dollar. You know, we've been saying for, a, you know, a decade, the U.S. dollar is going to continue to be strong. You know, there will be there will be moments in there that it, there will be weaknesses and pullbacks, etc. But a big part of that is because we think that the euro is going to be so weak. And I mean, over the last, you know, eight, 10 years, I mean, the, the ECB has just destroyed their bond market. And so what we're looking at is, you know, the euro is going to get hit. How can we make money at that? So we're looking, well... We think the U.S. dollar is going to be strong. You know, everything goes against the U.S. dollar. So if the U.S. dollar is strong, you're going to see other currencies weak. Uh, you're going to see commodities get weaker. You're going to see gold generally get weaker, although not all the time. And if the U.S. dollar gets weak, then the other currencies get strong, commodities get strong, etc. 
So the U.S. dollar has been on a tear this year, and it's been mostly acting as a safe haven. So we warned it was technically overbought in July. It got up to about a dollar nine. Um, is currently about a dollar seven. But our target there is for about buck fifteen to a buck twenty. And like you say, Mike, one of our favorite ways to play this trend over the last decade has been we've been shorting the euro, and we haven't been doing it with options or futures or anything. Just using exchange traded fund, very simple to do. And we're using a, a two-time leveraged short euro ETF. And we bought it in uh, the last time we bought it was January 21. We still hold it, and it's up about 45% since then. And we'll continue to buy, and you know we'll sell it, take our profits every once in a while. But it's a it's been just an absolutely great trade for us over the last decade. Yeah, it's an area of the market. Of course, Victor talks about that with us on a regular basis, you know, just the area that you're alluding to, that uh, there's been such gyrations in the currency markets. And with that dominant, strong U.S. dollar. But I, I just, as an aside, Martin, I just keep looking at, I have a list of 32 emerging markets because, of course, when you have a weak currency, I mean, I divide the world into two parts. Those uh, emerging markets that have to import oil and they're experiencing a weak dollar on top of it, a weak currency rather, you know, oil price in U.S. dollar. It's just devastating. And I think it's, it's literally historic what's going on. And I'm sort of that lonely voice who screams about that, you know, like, hey, you're in a historic period of change. But I think that's validating that. And it all comes back to, as you say, the currency, commodity markets, social stability, all of that's in play right now. Well, just, just further to what you just said, Mike, I mean, we published a chart uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it's, I mean, the big thing to me for the emerging markets is the amount of debt that they borrowed in U.S. dollars. So they've issued all of this debt in U.S. dollars because the rates were so low. And then now they have to pay it back in the U.S. dollar. So as that debt matures, they are actually having to pay it back in this much elevated U.S. dollar. And it's crushed. It's going to. I think it's just going to crush them. So, yeah, we've been avoiding the emerging markets totally. Well, there's so much, as I say, happening at the same time because it's all interplay, as you say, interconnected. And I'll invite people to go to the trendletter.com, the trendletter.com. You can click on, as I say, the blog there and see, you know, some of these charts that Martin's uh, alluding to here. In the meantime, thanks very much for finding time uh, in the summer for us, but a, a very important update. Just really quickly, Mike, if you can. Um, because we've done this before, um, if any of your, your listeners want to subscribe, we've given some great rates. So that will be up on that blog. And also we'll donate uh, $50 each to the Kids Fund and to the uh, Special Olympics because that's just something we like to do. Wonderful stuff. Wonderful stuff. Thanks, Martin. TheTrendLetter.com. Have a good weekend. I've been saying this is probably the biggest financial mistake people can do, and it's easy to rectify. I'm talking specifically, you'll see poll after poll tell us that a huge percentage of Canadians do not have an up-to-date will. Well into the majority of Canadians don't. I mean, and more than a majority don't even have a will. This is a disastrous financial mistake. And I want to talk about that today. And I'm so pleased to have Jamie Wood on with me. Jamie's a lawyer, a mediator who practices primarily in the area of family law. She's also a former co-chair of the Vancouver Family Law Section of the Canadian Bar Association. Jamie, much appreciate you taking the time. Thank you very much for having me, Mike. 
It must be a head shaker for you, though, when you think something so straightforward as, you know, hey, you don't have a will. And it's, it's that degree, that many people. And especially if you go down the age group, the latest stuff I've seen can show as many as 70% of people, say, under 40. But they may have families, clearly have jobs, clearly have assets, and they don't even have a will. I mean, as I say, more than a head shaker. Well, I think really it's quite common because people tend to delay about these things. We don't like to think about our own mortality and we sometimes think about what could possibly be the best plan and we get stuck thinking, well, what would I do? And then it's easier just to put it off for later. Well, let's motivate people in this way because let's talk, and I know these are all broad questions and then, you know, obviously in the legal profession, you get into the minute of it. But bottom line is, what happens if I die without a will? So if you die without a will, the situation is, is that there is default legislation in place that sets out what will happen. And the reality of the situation is most people don't know what that would say about their situation, but by not planning ahead, they're letting the government choose for them. Yeah. Let, let that sink in for a minute. <laughs> Think of your favorite politician and the bureaucrats deciding what's going to happen with the assets you've accumulated in a lifetime. You know, <laughs> I'm just saying, sorry, that's not a tasty thought for me. If that's not enough motivation for some people to do it. How straightforward is it, though, as you, you just alluded to, maybe some people are a little confused by the process. So uh, I'm just not going to do it today. It's actually pretty straightforward for most people, Mike. The first step, if you can get going, is the hardest. And that is just getting in contact with someone who can assist you. So you want to reach out to a lawyer or a notary who practices in the area of estate and incapacity planning, and they can help you figure out what are the best tools for you. And I'll leave the incapacity part for a second and just focus on uh, someone who's passed away within that. Uh, the other thing that uh, I get the gist from what you have told me is that um, you don't have to make it perfect. Do you know what I mean? You don't have to sit there and think I'm going to have all 97 bases covered perfectly. I mean, it's sort of like get something on, on paper to start with. That's right. Because the reality of the situation is you can change your will and your state planning at any time. And in fact, people are recommended to look back at their planning every couple of years just to make sure it fits with their current intentions. So you don't need the perfect plan. You just need a good enough plan for now because your good enough plan is going to be better than the default legislation. Yeah, better than the government handling it for me. But, and as you say, circumstances uh, pass. I mean, it's not a really positive thing as you alluded to up front, but a dear friend of mine who was in my will has passed away. So obviously that necessitates a change. Also, it could be, you know, your assets have changed or something else has changed, you know, within that. So, you know, the updating part is also part of this conversation because someone could sit back and go, hey, you know what? I got a will. Well, you probably haven't looked at it in 10 years. So maybe you want to have a check. Exactly. You need to look at it every couple of years just to make sure that it fits with your current intentions. And also if there's major events in your life. So for example, if you have a new marriage or a separation or a divorce or new children or new grandchildren, or as you say, a major beneficiary is gone. You want to look at your estate planning and see, is this still what I want? And even in terms of picking who your executors are going to be, there's people who come in and out of our lives in terms of who we trust at specific times. And the people that we chose five years ago may not be the people we most trust today. Yeah, and I, I think such an important point that things do change, obviously, in our lives, but the impact it would have on 
you know, our dispersal of assets and what we, uh, you know, have as our top choices, uh, you know, uh, but, you know, again, I'm going to come back to what I said right at the outset. I, I can't believe that somebody who's got dependent children does not have a will. And yet the numbers tell us that that's, you know, these sort of uh, something in the neighborhood of between the ages of 25 and 34, the latest stat I saw polls said 80% of them don't have a will. That's incredible to me. That I mean, that's an age group that's certainly going to have a lot of children involved. 35 to 44 was 75%. And I guess I'm just trying to impress upon people not to leave this, not to shove this aside, you know, get going on this kind of thing. Yeah. And I think that this is, this is a key point. Uh, your estate planning allows you to choose and puts you in control as opposed to the government and government agencies being in control. But what it also does is it protects the people you care about most and relieves a huge burden from them. And especially if you have minor children, you need to be really clear about what your intentions are and who you trust to be caring for these children and whatever estate you're leaving for them. Uh, the other side, and, and you've just, I mean, it's my age that I know people who've passed away, but you sort of alluded to this, and that is if you pass away without a will, the the trauma is exacerbated for your family members and loved ones. That I mean, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that starts kicking in besides just the financial, uh, you know, my gosh, the unraveling of a financial situation or an asset-related situation is worse. And you've just added to the pain and the emotional stress for your family members. Well, that's true. And I mean, your your show is about money. What you've also done is you've increased the cost and reduced the amount of money that you're, the people you care about most are going to receive because there's going to be money spent trying to figure out a plan for you as opposed to a plan that you put in place in advance. Well, obviously, we're not going to sort of do it all here at the moment, but maybe uh, you advise me. Uh, it's a good starting place just to sit there and sort of think about what your goals, maybe put them on paper or your intentions, you know, if something happened to you. Secondly, maybe list assets that you've got, that kind of thing. Would that be a starting point before you saw someone who, a professional who's sort of involved in will making? You can do that. You can start by making a list of the people in your life, your family members, people that you would want to um, benefit, people that you trust who you could possibly appoint as an executor. Um, you can start gathering together information about your finances. But really, the first step that any um, estate planning professional is going to take with you is they're going to walk you through those steps. So, so if you take as your first step, reaching out to somebody who knows about this area, then at least they can point you in the direction of what you need to do. So you're not running down rabbit holes, you don't need to go down. Uh, can you give us a hint of how we could choose someone to do that? I mean, do we look them up in the yellow pages and he or she, you know, estate planning, that kind of, is it that straightforward? Well, estate planning is a specific area of practice. Yeah. And so you don't, you don't necessarily just go to anybody. You want to go to somebody who this is their area. You can find a person like that if you've, if you've worked with a lawyer and notary for other reasons, like, for example, doing real estate transactions or, you know, family law stuff, you can ask that person for a referral to somebody who works in this area. Um, you might have a financial professional who can ask for a referral to an estate lawyer or a notary, um, family members, friends. And if you don't know anybody who knows of a good estate planning professional, you can contact a trusted professional organization like the Canadian Bar Association, and they should be able to put you in touch with, um, there's a section in each kind of area, uh, geographic area that deals with wills and estates and they should be able to put you in touch with that section in your area so you can get a list of names of professionals. 
Yeah, I'm trying to remove all the barriers people have to why they don't do it. So let me finish with this and ask you, I mean, just through your experience, it's anecdotal and other people you talk to far more extensive than the rest of us, though. How come people aren't doing this? Well, I think that there's a lot of reasons and each person has their own reason. Um, But I think if we can think about four that might resonate with your viewers, fear, people don't like to think about bad things like their own death, Um, inertia, not knowing how to start. And you've kind of addressed this today in our talk. Um, This perfectionism, wanting to have a perfect plan. So you know how to get started, but then you just, you think to yourself, well, I don't know what to do that would be perfect. And that stops you. And then a fourth reason, many people are concerned about how other people in their life will react to their wishes. Like, will people think I'm unfair? Will they think um, that I've done the right thing? And so that can stop people. But the real thing is, that if you don't plan, the government has a plan for you. So it's better for you to plan because it's going to be better for you. It's going to reduce a burden on your family. It's going to reduce costs and it's going to reduce delay. And all of those reasons um, make it better to make a good enough plan than to sit around and have no plan. That's great stuff, Jamie Wood. Thank you so much for taking the time. I said, I'm thinking about a money talks. You always want to do something worthwhile. You know, you want to make it worth listening to. And you just did that for us because I can't think of a better starting point if we want to make a difference. When I look at those numbers, as I said, when I get down to 80% of people, uh, what, 25 to 34 without a will, but you go right through the Canadian public, the majority do not have one, let alone updating one. Uh, That is a financial nightmare waiting to happen. Thanks so much for taking the time to help us out. Thank you very much, Mike. Time now for the shocking stat of the week, and it's a biggie. Why? Because we're celebrating the anniversary. The date was August 15th, 1971. That's when Richard Nixon closed the gold window. That's when the U.S. dollar was no longer backed by gold. Instead, it was just backed by the good faith of government. Woo, good luck with that. But if that's what set the stage for the printing of a massive amount of money, increasing the money supply. Why? Because they didn't have to attach it to gold any longer. That's why uh, we've got things like inflation. It's always related back to that. That's why we have massive government debt. I mean, it's arguably the most important financial date in the last hundred years, especially if we're only talking about how it impacts us, because it meant this. Hey, Up to that point, any foreign government could present the U.S. government with 35 bucks and in return get an ounce of gold. Well, the trouble is foreign governments were watching how much money the U.S. was printing and said, hey, that relationship can't last. So they started to do that. Hey, they stepped up to what was called the gold window, gave them $35 U.S., got their ounce of gold. France led that charge to such an extent that they started to worry, hey, we're going to run out of gold at Fort Knox. That's what precipitated the action by Nixon saying, you can no longer do that. Hey, by the way, U.S. citizens weren't allowed to own gold from 1933 on. They had to turn it in. They get to keep a small amount. But I love this. This is one of the beauties of all time. The government would say, hey, give me that ounce of gold. You must give me that ounce of gold. We'll give you $20.67. You know what? Within a year of doing that, forcing citizens to turn over their gold, Well, the government said now it's worth $35, a 69% increase in the value of the government's holdings. That should be filed way up front and the government can do anything. But that all brings me to the shocking stat of the week. Since that time in 1971, the U.S. dollar has lost 86% of its purchasing power. 
In other words, $100 worth of goods and services in 1971 would cost $731 today. Think about that one. And if you wonder why people look for gold to sort of protect them against that sort of devaluation of purchasing power, well, consider in that same time period, gold moved about 4,900%. That was moving from $35 to trading, well, what now? $1,700 to $1,800. But the bottom line is, that's the anniversary this past Monday of the date when governments got carte blanche to print whatever money they did because, again, no longer backed by gold. Well, I'm going to raise a little trouble here today because, you know, one of the things that's driven me nuts is how many years have I been hearing politicians talk about their great, deep, undying concern for affordable housing? Well, you know what? I think they should be looking in the mirror. And I'm going to bring Ozzy Jurek in right now because new report shows really to the degree to which governments add to the cost of, you know, want to build new homes? We've got to build new homes and apartments, condos, townhouses. Ozzy, again, it's just driven me nuts that the, the lack of, I'm trying to think of the right word, integrity in talking about uh, affordable housing or at least the BS involved with it because governments, you know, front and center, like they are in gasoline prices with adding to the cost. Well, and you're right, of course, and we've talked about it before, but when you and I are talking, well, we seem to have a bias, but this is a CMHC, the Housing Market Insight Report. So this is the largest housing organization that we have. They They are in the know and they're saying, well, the costs and fees levied by governments, they studied Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver, can be as much as 20% or more of the cost of housing. Yeah, and it certainly depends the province you're in and the municipality because they jump on in. And I mean, I'm looking at uh, a report by the Vancouver Board of Trade going back a couple of years only, though, that said that, you know, you build a new condo, well, you can look at 25% are government-related costs, as you say, when they average it out, maybe 20 throughout the uh, country. But I'm just pointing out it can be more depending on your jurisdiction. Well, the interesting thing, I mean, they did, a, I think, a really strong report because they said these fees add a direct cost to the production of housing. And then they say government fees also add complexity and uncertainty to the development process as construction timelines hinge upon the successful collection of fees. So that is so true. If if you're building in in Richmond or in Vancouver or in Maple Ridge, it's a world of difference what each municipality's requirements are, the length of time it gets to get permits and all these adds to the cost. Yeah, that's what underappreciated, though, I think, is that permit delays. I mean, let's say I buy the land, I want to do the development. Well, I've got costs that are ringing up right now. If I borrowed the money, especially the interest costs have kicked in immediately. Well, I'm waiting to get that permit. And that's been a huge complaint over the years of developers. You're just throwing on costs to me, which will get passed on to the consumer. Yeah, and look, at we have warranty fees. We have municipal fees. We have development charges. We have density payments. We have permit fees. These are just a few of the channels for municipalities to raise revenues. And the report says there's several more depending on which city uh, that you're in. And the whole idea is the variance between municipalities also something to behold. You know, that literally, as I said earlier, depending on where you are building, it can cost you uh, up to a 5% more than 
but the, the average is of 20. And, and then if you're like in a province like British Columbia, the province jumps in and says, you're going to pay me for the right to buy a house, something called the property purchase tax, which uh, in Alberta, they don't suffer from. But as I say, depends on where you are in the country. In British Columbia, though, that's a, let's just slap on tens of thousands of extra dollars on the cost of that purchase. Interesting, too, is that the city of Vancouver and Toronto are the highest in the country and the lowest is Montreal. So it's not all big cities that, uh, that have their hand out. But here's sort of an interesting little twist. The fees, as far as single detached homes are concerned, are the lowest government fees. So where, they, where governments out of the corner of their mouth say, we are into densification, we have great densification efforts. That's what their official thing is. And then they go after condos, the highest densification. Why do they do that? Well, they don't want to chase all the individual homeowners, which are also very clear voters. But it's okay to zap the, the, the developer or the real estate industry. And Mike, here's the real side. Government handout is on average 20%, could be more. The average profit a developer makes is between 10 and 15%. So in other words, uh, and again, sorry, I'm going back to gas because people care about that one too, Ozzy, where you know about, depending on where you are, again, there's different jurisdictions, different taxes levied on besides the federal, you know, provincial taxes differ, but also certainly municipal. But again, who's the big winner in gasoline? Nobody in the refining business, even in the big boom times we've had recently, uh, none of the oil companies make anywhere near as much as the government because it's... And there's guarantee. And as you say, you look at the development, you want who the big winner is, it's going to be government over top of uh, what the development fees will be. As I say, there's such a huge disconnect, especially with, uh, you know, I think it's a consensus, we need more supply. Well, then we should be looking at every one of these things and say, are you encouraging or discouraging supply? And way too often it comes, it's discouraging supply, which again, keeps prices higher. And again, all of these costs, when you mention like a warranty fee or municipal fee development charges, hey, they get passed on to the consumer. Of course. In fact, a few years ago, an appraisal company looked at just a, a condo building on, on Canby and it cost one not just 20% higher, it was something like 26% and more. So the point is, it's clear they talk densification, they talk affordability, but then they zap the very the very developers and can make make that densification effort possible. I think what we need to do is stop blaming the real estate industry or anybody for that matter and take a good hard look. Maybe we should eliminate the GST for first-time buyers altogether or raise the threshold for first-time buyers to 750000 or that, as you pointed out, the property tax relief. I mean, even the stress test is questionable. It seems to be we do everything possible for the first-time buyer not to be able to buy. And even good old England just eliminated its stress test. Well, it's interesting because you got both sides of the equation. On the buy side, you're making it tougher, more expensive for the consumer. But on the supply, uh, sorry, that's on the buy side. On the supply side, we need more supply. Then you see the number of roadblocks that are put up in front of the developers. I mean, I'm just saying there's, I'm not suggesting there's some sort of simplistic solution here, but it's that the talk doesn't even come close to mirroring what the actions have been and it's about time we got that if we start getting serious and you know what way too often i say this yeah we talk a lot but we're not serious about it well and we have immigration and we have lots of people coming and yes it's not as you said a, a very simple solution but boy 
stop pointing the fingers. It's, it's always somebody uh, good to blame. And the development industry is uh, doing a, a great job, I think. Well, Ozzy, I want to remind people that you've got the Land Rush Conference coming up September 10, September 10th. They can go to landrushcanada.com. You've got tons of speakers. You'll get the lowdown in every aspect from every type of housing, though you'll hear more about this, but more about the opportunities and maybe a couple of pitfalls, what to stay away from at the Land Rush Conference. So I'll look forward to hearing more about that, Ozzy. Thanks, Mike. We have Cam Good, who's the president of Key Marketing. is the largest innovative project marketing company in Vancouver, and he's going to talk about the sky is not falling. <laughs> you know? And then finally, Mike, I want to remind you that if your mother asks you, do you want a piece of advice? That is just a mere formality. It doesn't matter if you answer yes or no. You're going to get it anyway. <laughs> there you go. Hey, by the way, I think I've been accused of the same thing. Ozzy Jurek, ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca. Let's go live to the trading desk now. The trading desk is presented by G2 Energy, securing tomorrow's unique oil and gas acquisition opportunities today. That's G2 Energy. Vic, so, much thing, so many things to talk about, but if you allow me, I'm just going to start with a personal note because it's a personal note I know for you also, uh, and that is the passing, the sudden and shocking passing of Endeavor Silver's uh, Brad Cook. Uh, I, I say that because he's such a fine person, uh, helped us with Special Olympics, as did Endeavor Silver, so uh, I'm in a state of shock and he'll be sorely missed. Yeah, Mike, I got to know Brad over the last 25 years or so. He's just one of the absolute nicest guys in the mining business and, and very successful with what he did with developing silver mines in, in Mexico uh, with Endeavor Silver. Um, we're always shocked when somebody dies so quickly, and especially when it's a good person, somebody we know. And, and you know, I, I'm we're, we're going to miss him. What can I say? Absolutely. Vic, let's turn to the market action right now. But I want to start with something uh, a little bit different is that we're in the dog days of August. I mean, August is the holiday season uh, in Europe, for example, other parts of the world and clearly here, too. But it's, you know, so I see lighter volumes. What does that mean to you as a trader or someone who's analyzing the market? Uh, over the years, I've often thought that it's kind of like going back to school. You know, we all, at least North America, sort of grew up with the idea you go back to school. Uh, when uh, when Labor Day comes and goes. And uh, there's something similar happens in the markets. We call it the silly summer season. You know, the adults are not in the room. Uh, trading volume Thursday of this week would have been the lowest volume day of the year, except for some huge volume that was happening in Bed Bath & Beyond with another one of these wild and crazy stocks. Um, what it means to me, really, is my trader's intuition is telling me that the markets are going to get back to business with a bang once we get past Labor Day. And there's just so many things brewing, you know, whether it's in different markets, the interest rates, currencies and so on, geopolitical events, all that kind of stuff. There's so much stuff going on. And yet it seems like we're, we're whistling past the graveyard here, in, at least in the stock market during the silly days of summer. Well, one of the things you put up on victordare.ca, uh, I just found is a fascinating stat that we look at the big rally we've had. Obviously, it's been a good one, you know, from mid-June, say, up until uh, this past week. Uh, but 30% of that rally comes down to just the performance of four stocks. Yeah, Apple, Amazon, uh, Microsoft, and Tesla account for 30% of the rally in the S&P 500, you know, a, a, the benchmark 
since the lows of mid-June to this week's highs. It's, and it's an interesting thing in that these were the faves before. You know, people, and what, what we've seen here is we've seen short covering by hedge funds who had been shorting the market. Remember, we had the Dow fell off about 30, I should say 3,000 points in about five days ahead of the June FOMC meeting. And the hedge funds were, were getting short. So they've been covering. There's been FOMO buying. And we've seen retail come back into the market, not the least of which I just mentioned Bed Bath & Beyond has been kind of a, the gong show there. So, yeah, there's just been um, a, a concentration in big, big cap tech that's driven this rally. Hey, and let me come to one a couple of things I want to get to here, but I want to just start with everybody's going to be talking about uh, Jerome Powell, Federal Reserve Chairman's speech this coming week at Jackson Hole. You know, uh, this is a traditional thing. The media gets all over it, like Bloomberg's going to broadcast live from there, hanging on every word. And so that's the first thing that you're going to see the markets focused on that. But here's the second thing. I wonder if they'll report. So I looked at his speech from last year. He got everything wrong. You know? So, hey, we were still that this time last year, he was still talking transitory inflation and, and some other things around that that scope. And I'm just thinking it's, you know, you can't make it up. I have to smile when I think of all the attention that the markets will pay, pay to his speech this coming week. Yeah, sure. Jackson Hole is sort of shorthand for this meeting that the various central bankers have had uh, out in Wyoming. Uh, I think it goes back about two decades. And we've had some significant news come out of Jackson Hole before, so maybe that's why it, it has the focus. Mike, you know, besides the, the stock market, which is I think has been in a bear market rally, that's my view, and as a trader, I'm willing to be wrong about that. But besides that, I mean, we've got all hell breaking loose in a way in the currency markets. You know, the U.S. dollar index was at a 20-year high just, uh, I guess, mid-July. It backed off a few percentage points, but it's come roaring back here this past week. But you focus on a couple one. The euro here is just above par with the U.S. dollar. And it hasn't been there. I don't know. It's, it's 20 years, I guess, since we've seen the euro trading below par. And I keep mentioning my favorite metric about how existential things are in Europe. And that's the cross rate with the Swiss franc. The euro has gone to a new all-time low against the Swiss franc as sophisticated money in Europe is looking around and saying, holy mackerel, what am I going to do to protect myself? You know, I'll go to Switzerland. And I think that relates to them. You know, I, obviously not everyone who buys or sells gives me a phone call and says what I'm about to do. But I don't think it's a stretch to say a lot of the money moving out of Europe, that's pushing the euro lower and pushing uh, uh, the U.S. dollar higher, is also finding its way into the stock market, at least some of those uh, big stocks we've been talking about. But the other one, too, and I want to get to this story, and that's what's happening in China. Because as Martin Armstrong um, told us in June, that he expected money to be pouring out of China because of their real estate slash banking problems, and some of it will find its way into the U.S. So you've looked at that. I know you do this. You follow the Remindi. You know, and you look at its weakness. Uh, you look at the problems in China. I mean, all of this is the investment backdrop for us. Yeah, I don't know how easy it is for money to flow out of China. I know they have capital controls of different kinds. Let's not go there for this point. What did happen this week is that the Bank of China, People's Bank of China, cut interest rates. You know, while everybody else around the world, with the exception of Turkey, uh, has been has been raising interest rates. So they they cut rates to make it long and simple. 
because the economy is slower than they'd like it to be. They've got these deleveraging problems. And I've thought for some time that the incredible house of cards built in China and the financial house of cards with a lot of leverage was due for a day of reckoning at some point in time. And so when the, the People's Bank of China cut interest rates, the Chinese RMB or the Wenanbi, whatever, whatever RMB, let me stick with that, did, did take a sharp drop. We are close to the, the lowest it's been in several years. And there certainly is some anticipation in the market that the Chinese authorities are happy to see their currency weakening. And speaking Chinese, if we go to the Japanese yen, I mean, the Japanese yen right now is just a tick or two above the lowest it's been in 24 years. The whole Asian currency block is, according to our good friend Martin Muirnbield, is grossly undervalued because they want to have that trading advantage. If you've got a cheap currency, you can do your exports. Uh, well, the other thing, of course, we've been reporting on, and uh, I think correctly outlined with Aussie and you talking about their property market, which is 70% of their, you know, the net wealth of the individuals there. And I'm reading stories like half a million people can't get their deposit because they bought one of those pre-sales with one of the developers that is now out of business. And that's causing, you know, social unrest. Uh, but I'm just pointing out that the list is a long one. They have severe problems in China. And of course, it's not easy to get all the data we want there. We do know, uh, though, that there's a considerable banking problem slash property uh, market problem in China. And it's such and it's the most important part of their economy, too. Well, one of the reasons why we care, of course, is China has been the um, elephant in the room, let's call it, with respect to the commodity markets for the past 20 years. And uh, if that was to change, I'm not saying it will, but you can think it could, uh, that, would be, that would be huge. Driving all of this, Mike, has been Federal Reserve policy. And I think sometime back we were talking about what's the single most important thing. Well, it's been what's the Fed going to do? And the market keeps reacting here. We've got the, U, the United States two-year Treasury note has gone to a 14-year high yield. I mean, you know, just two years ago, it was the lowest it had ever been in history. You know, so we've seen the, a dramatic move here. And, of course, we had a statement early late this week, I should say, one of the, one of the FOMC members saying that the Fed must, must curb inflation, even if, it means creating a recession. You know, they're, they're letting you know they're, they're, they don't want to fool around this time. They got a job to do and they're going to do it, whether they're right or wrong. Yeah. And, and the problem that they've been doing is they've I mean, I don't think they've been straight up with us because they don't want to panic the markets. I'm going back several months now. You know, they would talk, oh, soft landing. We can do it, all that stuff. Well, they can hardly come out and say, I think we're going to have a severe recession as we get inflation under control, at least on the buy side. So I'm not surprised. But again, Vic, I know you'll be watching. I'll be watching. Uh, and listening to what happens at Jackson Hole, even though the track record of the Federal Reserve is not that good. We could come back to where we started, Mike, and that is, you know, the silly days of summer. Well, once, once we get into September, all of a sudden, winter's just a few weeks away. And winter, you know, is, is a loaded word right now, particularly in Europe, where energy prices are unbelievably off the top of the chart. And you say, what the hell is going to happen that's why I keep referring to it as this existential crisis in Europe. And that's going to reverberate everywhere. We had natural gas prices in North America. We're at a 14 year high this week as we're trying to move LNG out of North America over to Europe. So everything's connected at the hip or otherwise. And so it's like you can't miss 
<laughs> any part of the play or you're going to miss the theme. Well, Vic, you've just given great reason why people have to keep uh, tuning into Money Talks. Thanks to the work that you do. You can go to victoradare.ca, check out his latest chart deck and everything else he's got to say about the markets. And a reminder that Live from the Trading Desk is presented by G2 Energy. G2 Energy trades on the Canadian Securities Exchange under the symbol GTOO. Go to g2.energy and you can learn more and see the investor fact sheet. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. Well, last week we had a horrific attack on 75-year-old author Salman Rushdie, stabbed 10 times. All he was doing was giving a talk on books and writing in New York State. I mean, he's been in the spotlight, of course, though, since the publication of his book, Satanic Verses, in 1988. The Ayatollah Khomeini issued a decree called a fatwa ordering his murder. Later, by the way, they put on a multi-million dollar bounty on his head. And that still stands today. But here's the point. Upon news of the attack and the severity of uh, Salman Rushdie's injuries, we had political leaders, people from the literary community, others from around the world condemning the attack as an assault on free speech. Prime Minister Trudeau, for example, said in quotes, the cowardly attack on Salman Rushdie is a strike on the freedom of expression that our world relies on. No one should be threatened or harmed on the basis of what they have written. Well, I couldn't agree more. But then I start thinking about this, that it's a bigger issue or it's another issue. It's an addendum that I think we should be talking a lot more about free speech and about attacks on free speech. I mean, I'm not so sure that that's supported if we were talking about the truckers convoy or we disagreed with a Western government's response to the pandemic. I mean, that's where, I mean, obviously it's a horrific attack. When you attack somebody, you have the severity of the injuries that Salman Rushdie uh, endured. But it's also an issue, obviously not as serious the way we handle things in this way, but it's a growing issue in our country, in the Western world, and that censorship and the attacks on free speech. I mean, the government's interviewed, introduced three bills, BC 10, uh, Bill C-10, C-36, Bill C-11. You know, uh, former CRTC commissioner Peter Menzies stated, in quotes, just it's an attack that constitutes a full-blown assault on free speech. When the Ontario Civil Liberties Association saw the draft of the proposal for C-11, it said, a law that grossly violates the fundamental human rights of freedom of expression. So maybe the attack on Salman Rushdie can at least spur a more serious discussion on what free speech means to all of us, what it means in our society, the importance in our society, because I think that's been lacking. And we have so many examples of it, of course. Uh, social media has been criticized for their penchant for censorship. Uh, governments have been criticized for not just bills like Bill C-11, but it's also putting pressure for censorship, for saying there's an approved point of view. I mean, gosh, the World Economic Forum uh, a couple of weeks ago started calling for the merger of human AI and AI censorship to uh, censor hate speech and misinformation. You know, my goodness. I mean, the list is a long one. I'm just saying it needs a discussion that Salman Rushdie's horrific attack may be spurring a broader discussion about what our attitudes are about free speech. What about freedom of expression? So I'm going to leave the last word to Mr. Rushdie himself. He says, what is freedom of expression without the freedom to offend? It ceases to exist. I think all of us have to weigh in on what our attitude is. That's all the time I have today. Look, I want to remind you again, every week I think I think about this, though. I see what's covered, so broadly speaking, and I know it's a, a generalization, but the mainstream media. 
But I don't think that's what's happening in the world. There's so much happening that are going to impact our lives specifically on a regular basis, especially our financial lives. And that's why I invite you to go to Money Talks Tweets or mikesmoneytalks.ca or Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. It's a chance for us to bring a lot of facts to the forefront. I think opinions that are not within the generally accepted narrative. So you can form your own opinions. And the more informed you are, I say the better it is. But again, it was another week where I saw, man, this should be reported on and it wasn't. So one of the ways to rectify that is join us on Facebook, join us on Twitter, join us on our webpage, mikesmoneytalks.ca. And in the meantime, I hope you go out and have a wonderful weekend. 